Good morning once again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 16. We'll open up Matthew chapter 16 this week. The last few weeks we've been looking uh, at Matthew 14 and 15, and really the beautiful kind of parallel structure that develops there. A book ended by two mass feedings, Jesus feeding the multitudes, and then immediately before that or immediately after that, depending on what chapter you're in, uh, you have that presentation of Jesus healing many of many different kinds of diseases. And then immediately before that or immediately after that, as you move in on that parallel structure, you have an encounter with people struggling with the identity of Jesus. In one sense, it's the scribes and the Pharisees and those who should have gotten it, but they don't. And in the other chapter, it's that Canaanite woman who had no reason to get it, but who does. And at the very heart of all of that, chapter 15, 10 to 20, we're told that this is a matter of the heart. In other words, when we're asking who comes to the kingdom, who comes into this kingdom that Christ is proclaiming? Is it the rich? Is it the wealthy? Is it the well-known? Is it the well-off? No. Is it the well-educated? Is it the well-connected? Is it the well-bred? Well, the answer is clearly no. It's the one who comes in humility. It's the one who comes in faith, recognizing that they don't have any ability to bring anything worthwhile to God on their own at all. That's why the scribes and the Pharisees, it's why the religious elite miss it. The Messiah is standing right in front of them, and they miss it. They would rather have a righteousness that they construct themselves. And at the core of things, that's not a behavior problem. That's a heart problem. And it's why that Canaanite woman can get it. Because it's not a heritage problem. It's not an understanding problem. It's a heart problem. And as she comes rightly, her faith is called great faith. Those who should know display great ignorance and even... Uh, anger toward this Christ and those who are outside and other display great faith and that's kind of becoming one of the patterns that we see in this gospel that this gospel message this message of the kingdom goes out to the Jew first but then to the Gentile also because not only are we asking who comes to the kingdom but what kind of kingdom do they come to are there different kingdoms for different people and we see the same power of the same kingdom come on those Gentile areas and even as Jesus goes to that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis to people who have no reason, uh, no hope to see this kind of power demonstrated in their midst, they see Jesus healing many. To those who have no hope of this messianic understanding of plenty and provision that the kingdom promises make, uh, they are fed, and not only are they fed, but their needs are provided for abundantly. Why? Well, because God has always promised blessing to the nations, and because God is always faithful to his promises. He made very specific promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David through that line. And he intends to keep those promises. And a part of those promises was that Israel's Messiah would be a blessing to the nations. And at this point in the narrative, what more could be said? What more public miracles could we think of for Jesus to do? The signs are literally everywhere that he is exactly who he says he is. But the question is, will they be seen? If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 16. And our text for today is going to be 16, 1 through 12. I'm going to read 16, 1 through 4 to set the stage for where we're going. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. This is what God's word says. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. 
And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Let's pray. Lord, it seems like we've seen signs or references to these types of things all the way through Matthew's gospel. And at our heart, we know that they're supposed to mean something. Lord, help us not to miss it. God, we recognize that as a people, we have a heart problem. That's what chapter 15 said. That out of the heart come all of the evil deeds, all of the evil thoughts, all of the evil intentions, all of the stain of sin. And so, Lord, what we need is a new heart. So we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word that you would change our heart, that you would enlighten our eyes, that you would renew our minds so that we're a people of understanding and ultimately a people of worship and obedience. And we recognize, Lord, that we need your help to do all these things. And so we ask in Christ's name, amen. Now, most of us carry one of these things around with us just about everywhere we go. And I'm going to do something relatively dangerous, and that is I'm going to take mine off of silent for just a moment. And you never know what's going to happen. Now, we can debate on whether it's good to have this around or not. uh, But one of the things that is very helpful about this particular device is that encompassed in this small thing, uh, I have access to the most comprehensive series of maps and directions that have ever been held in the history of humanity. You realize this is libraries of information. And this will tell me how to get to exactly where I need to go. And this particular one, I love it because not only will it tell me, but this one actually sings to me. In half a mile, turn left. I love that. (laughs) And if that's the case... All right, see, this is why it's a problem. Good news is at least it was on camera. If I have this in my pocket, in my car, at all times... If this has a little car that moves down the road for me, if this has a little man that sings to me when I am supposed to turn right, which apparently was just now, why is it then that this week alone, three different times, I had to turn right, then right, then right to go back to make the left that I should have made in the first spot? Because as much as I have this, I have grown accustomed to missing signs that are there. This will tell me that in half a mile I need to turn. And for some reason, I think that if I'm driving at 45 miles an hour, singing along to the radio, and as it turns out, singing along to the little man in my phone, I am somehow going to intuitively know when half a mile comes up to turn right. That's not the case. I need to be paying attention because the signs are there, and the signs, as it turns out, have street names printed in a language that I can read and understand. But how often... I drive right by it, and I miss the sign. And we come to this point in Matthew chapter 16, and we know some things about this Jesus. We know that this Jesus is different, that Jesus has power, that Jesus has authority. We know that these have to point to something greater. These have to move towards something other than just being a good man or a great teacher. And we know that, and it seems so clear, and yet there are people that don't seem to understand that. 
If that's the case, if everything that he is and does is a sign that points to who he is, how in the world is it that there are people that miss those signs? What kind of people miss those signs and why does it matter? That's what we're looking at today is missing the signs. And as we go through this passage that opens up in Matthew chapter 16, 1 to 12, we're actually going to see two different kinds of people that maybe aren't as different as we initially would think. Everyone in our passage today is blind to one degree or another. The only difference is some demonstrate this permanent blindness and some will demonstrate a passing blindness. That will make more sense as we go through. So as we open up chapter 16, let's start by looking at those who live in permanent blindness. And the first thing that we're going to see about people who live in permanent blindness is that they actually love the darkness that they live in. They love darkness. And to understand that, we really don't even have to start at Matthew chapter 16, 1. John's gospel talks a lot about light and dark, more even than Matthew. John's gospel opens up with the idea that the light came into the darkness, that Jesus is light and life. He says that the darkness didn't overcome the light. He said the light dwelled among us, that we saw his glory. But by the time we get to John chapter 3, we have a problem because we all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that is the very essence of good news. And yet right after that, we see that there's a problem. There's a judgment. Because we come to John 3.19 and this is what he says. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light, lest his works should be exposed. As we come into Matthew chapter 16, we have to remember that. We have to remember that there are no neutral parties here. There are no neutral parties here, and there are no neutral parties here. That there are those who live in darkness and who love the darkness, and there are those who used to live in darkness, but who have been transferred to a different kingdom, a kingdom of light. Now why start there? Because now look at 16.1. It says, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and that doesn't surprise us like it should. Because we think Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious Jews, came to Jesus. And in a sense, we're right. But when we hear things like Pharisees and Sadducees, we have to understand that those two groups do not mix. These are not uh, blood brothers of Judaism who celebrate a common faith. They are sects of Judaism, but that is about where the similarities end. The Pharisees, very, very conservative. Absolutely concerned with living out the letter of the law in every detail and even beyond the law as often as they could. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were not nearly as concerned with day-to-day obedience of all that the law prescribed. The Pharisees believed in things like resurrection and an afterlife, something that happened after death. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, and the great many of them didn't believe in any kind of afterlife at all. The Pharisees hated outside foreign culture and the idea that it would come in and somehow pollute their Judaism. The Sadducees would cooperate politically with whoever was in power as long as it gave them some power. What in the world can two groups like that have in common? The answer is a common enemy. Darkness will bond with darkness when it comes to fighting against the light. We've seen this play out, that enemies can become friends when you find a greater enemy. Most of us were alive for September 11th, 2001. 
And that evening on the steps of the Capitol, 150 of our legislators stood together, Republicans and Democrats, senators and representatives, and on the steps of the Capitol, they tearfully sang, God bless America. Why? How could political enemies, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives come together? Because for that day, there was a greater enemy, a greater threat. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have no love for one another. But they have found a greater enemy in Jesus Christ because Jesus threatened both. Jesus is talking about a kingdom that you do not come into with your own righteousness and your own standard and your own good behavior. And Jesus is preaching a kingdom that you do not get to politically cooperate with and worm your way into power on. He's talking about a kingdom that says you have no righteousness and a kingdom that says there is but one king and he doesn't share his power and authority with anyone. In fact, he only gives it to those who are childlike in their faith. And so two groups very much at odds come together for a greater enemy. And it's not because it's convenient. And it's not just because they don't like Jesus. It's this underlying spiritual principle that darkness loves the darkness that it lives in. And that darkness will stay and bond with darkness when it comes to fighting against the light. And we see that not only in who they come with. The idea that Pharisees and the Sadducees come together doesn't just reveal their hearts, but it's revealed in how they come. Look at how they come uh, to test him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him. They didn't come to learn. They didn't come to understand. They didn't come to try and convince him that he was wrong. They're not even coming for a debate. They come to test him. They come to make him stumble, to make him fall. They come with the express purpose of finding some fault in this Jesus Christ. And so the only thing that remains is to find a reason good enough to kill him. Remember, we've already been told that the Pharisees are ready to be done with him. They have already started plotting of how they will do away with him, how they will kill him. And by this time, the Sadducees have had enough too. And so they come together and they are now only looking for the cause to do it. So as they walk in darkness, they actually love the darkness. They prefer the darkness. And now what we're going to see is not only are they in darkness, not only are they blind, but that they're blind by choice. Why did they come? They came to test him. But how did they test him? Look at the rest of that verse. They test him and they asked him to show a sign from heaven. What is the tragic irony of that statement? They are surrounded by signs from heaven. Now, maybe they meant something in the heavenlies, something uh, outside of this earth, but whatever it was, they were demanding a sign when they were surrounded by signs. What did we just go through over the last two chapters? Jesus feeding multiple thousands of people twice. Jesus healing huge groups of people of every kind of disease twice. What have we seen all the way through Matthew's gospel that Jesus has a power and an authority to do things that are absolutely impossible from a human perspective, and he does it consistently. And what did we remember from last week? That none of these are done just because Jesus is a nice guy who makes people feel better. None of these are done just to draw a crowd. None of these are done uh, just because this kind of demonstration of power is a good thing. Is it good to heal illnesses? Absolutely. Is it good to see physical restoration? Absolutely. Is it good to have people's physical needs like bread provided for? Absolutely it is, but that is not the end reason. These are all signs that point to who Christ is. Everything that he is and everything that he does is a sign that points to who he is. How did Matthew start his gospel? This is Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The fact that he was a son of David is exactly what was said that the Messiah would be. And he was born in Bethlehem, exactly 
where the Messiah was going to be born. And he lived in Nazareth, exactly where the prophet said the Messiah would live. And he gives sight to the blind and opens the ears of the deaf, deaf, just like Isaiah said. And he removes people's diseases, just like the prophet says. And he's humble and gentle, just like the prophet said. And he speaks in parables, just like it was promised. So by the time we get here, we are designed to come to this place and say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? You have already seen everything that you need. This is not a lack of information. This is not a sensory problem. This is not an evidence problem. This is a heart problem. And doesn't that make sense? Because what did we just see in Matthew chapter 15? That all of this is a matter of the heart. Evil is a matter of the heart. Unbelief is a matter of the heart. So we understand that this is a heart problem. How can you know everything that's happened? How can you see all of these things and still ask for a sign? Because the problem is the heart. And his answer shows that. That's exactly what his answer is directed at. Look at what he says. They come and they ask him for a sign from heaven. In verse 2, he answered them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. In other words, uh, they look at the sky and they make certain assumptions. And what's fascinating is that I heard this exact same little uh, uh, parable when I was growing up. My, my papa, my grandpa, we would go to the beach, and he would say things like, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. And I had no idea what that meant, but I thought it was kind of cool because my grandpa said it. Well, it turns out that was around then too. And what's the idea? That they can take uh, certain things and make basic predictions and assumptions based on nothing more than the color of the sky. In something as inexact as weather-related science, science which they had no foundation in, they took observations and they understood that those meant certain things. What does Jesus say? You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You're not great weathermen, but you're better weathermen than you are theologians. You make sweeping statements about what is going to happen in the coming 24 hours based on nothing more than the color that the sky happens to be, and yet you miss this. The Messiah is from the family that you know he's going to be from. He is born where the prophets say he's going to be born. He lives where the prophets say he's going to live. He does what the prophets say he will do. He speaks what the prophets say he will speak. All of these come together in Jesus Christ, and you look at it and you say... Nah, couldn't possibly be. You look at a red sky, and you say it is certainly going to be this weather tomorrow. And you look at the specific, literal fulfillment of dozens of prophecies, and you say this guy is actually from Satan. Not only do they love the darkness, they are willfully blind. And so they reject the Messiah, and it turns out that rejection has a cost. Rejection brings further rejection. Look at what he says in verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. This is not a case of wanting more, seeking more, needing more. This is not a case of not enough evidence. This is a case of the fact that you are an evil generation. You are wicked, which is why you don't understand. And not only are you evil, you're adulterous. And he's not talking about their marriage ethic or their physical purity here. 
He's going back to the, what, the prof, what the prophets consistently used as a metaphor for Israel. Israel, as a people, were in covenant relationship to God. He said, you will be my people, my treasured possession among all the nations of the earth. And I am going to do certain things for you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. Ultimately, Israel, I will provide you salvation and a land to call your own. And the people said, wonderful. We will obey. We will do all that you say. And God, as we see, is perfectly faithful. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, the judges, David, the kings, the prophets, through every person in every generation, God is perfectly and exactly faithful to do exactly what he said he would do. And over and over and over, the people are not. They consistently rebel against God. They consistently disobey the clear commands that he gives. And they consistently instead pursue the people and the gods and the idols of the nations around them. And, God, and through the prophets, God says that that is akin to adultery. It is violating that covenant relationship. And so Jesus takes that picture and he applies it to them. Because as we're going to see later on in Matthew, these people considered themselves way better than their parents. The people of this time claim to love the prophets in their writings. They say, if we were alive in the times of the prophets, none of the bad stuff that happened to them would have happened. We would have been much more faithful than our fathers. And Jesus says, you're no better. You're no better. And so you're not going to receive a sign from heaven except the sign of Jonah. Now that should sound familiar to us because that's not the first time Jesus has said this. He said nearly the exact same words back in Matthew 12 when the scribes and the Pharisees came and asked for a sign. No sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And what does he say there? That just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. In other words, the next sign that is presented before you is going to be my death, my burial, and my resurrection. And guess what? You'll miss that too. And in the end, he left them and departed. He condemns their ignorance, he gives them a sign with no explanation, and then he leaves. He doesn't say, here's what I mean by the sign of Jonah. He doesn't say, all right, I know you, you don't, must just need one more thing. Here's another sign for you. He doesn't beg them to understand. Guys, you're just misunderstanding me. Please listen, please, one more time. Let me just explain myself again. He doesn't do any of those things. He says, you're wicked, you're evil, you're spiritually adulterers, and he leaves. And by the way, that is exactly what we would expect to happen. Why? Well, because we're in Matthew 16. And we know that back in Matthew 13, uh, as we work through those parables, Jesus said that to the one who has, more will be given, but even to the one who doesn't have, what he does have will be taken away. We expect those that are in darkness, that embrace the darkness, that love the darkness, those that remain willingly blind will lose even the light that they have. That part of the judgment poured out on them is that Christ removes himself from them. They lose the light and their darkness only increases. And maybe at this point, that makes sense to us. I mean, good grief. If anyone deserves that, it's these guys, right? We would expect the scribes and the Pharisees. We would expect the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We would expect the religious elite to miss out on these things. But as we come to this next section, we might be surprised to see that those who follow Jesus the most closely are still characterized by the same blindness sometimes. The big difference is, instead of a permanent blindness, now we're going to see those that live in a passing or a temporary blindness. 
As we come to verse 5, the first thing we're going to see is a caution. We're going to see Jesus caution and warn his disciples. Look with me at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Now, that's a, a kind of a background narrative statement that tells us a couple of things. First of all, the disciples were not intimately involved in that last encounter. Uh, they had come from the east side to the west side, and now they're going to depart again. There's a lot of movement here, and we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But at the background to all of this, the disciples on this part of the journey do not have any bread with them. Uh, maybe in the quick movement, maybe in the shifting circumstances, they forgot to pack it. Maybe uh, it was Peter's turn or John's turn, and they were wondering whose responsibility it was. But for whatever reason, at this point, they have forgotten to buy any bread. And that is going to come uh, in very handy to remember in a moment. Because into that physical situation, where they're moving again and where the disciples do not have any bread with them, into that physical situation, Jesus said to them in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, we know about leaven, and we know about what has just happened. We know from chapter 13 that Jesus has used leaven as a picture of something small having a great impact, something that is initially unseen in chapter 13, talking about the kingdom, something with small, humble, even unseen beginnings impacting a great deal, a little leaven, leavening a great deal of bread. And he says here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And we had just seen the Pharisees and Sadducees basically reject who he is. So Jesus is giving a warning, watch and beware, be on the lookout, uh, be on the alert for the influence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I think right here we would expect a contrast. We would expect that the religious leaders miss this, as they often do. But I think in our minds, as we're reading along with this, if we were just reading through kind of the flow of the narrative, we would expect that, well, the disciples understand. That the contrast that we would expect to see here is that the religious elite are blind, but somehow the disciples are able to see. That their blindness is contrasted with the sight and the perception of these men who follow Christ. But what do we see instead? Instead, we don't see clarity. Instead, we actually see further confusion. Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And these men demonstrate confusion. Look at verse 7. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. We've been told that they forgot bread. And now they are made aware that they have forgot to bring bread. Jesus, who, by the way, is absolutely aware that they did not bring any bread with them, uses a bread-based metaphor for his teaching. He is provoking a certain series of thoughts here. And instead of seeing what Jesus is talking about, instead of uh, responding in faith, instead of having eyes to see what is actually going on here, their minds move immediately to the physical. And they are now consumed with the problem of not having any bread. And having kids and having been a kid at some point, I can almost picture how this goes. Uh, They're in the boat and Jesus is at the back. He starts talking about leaven. And immediately, 12 guys, other end of the boat, pointing fingers at who it was that forgot the bread. We forgot the bread. It wasn't my fault. It was your fault. It was your turn. No, we were supposed to bring it. No, it's uh, James and Peter. No, they're consumed with this idea that they now don't have any bread. And we move immediately to the shaking our head, uh, you foolish disciples. Now, this is a bad response. And there is correction coming, and we'll get to that in a minute. But again, we're at a different time and place. It is very easy for us to shake our heads and say, there, there, you foolish disciples, how could you worry about bread? Because we forget bread, and we drive through and we get a hamburger on the way home. We forget bread, and we can go to any store or even any gas station and pick up a loaf. We forget bread, and if we are feeling particularly unmotivated, we can call someone and have bread delivered to us, and we don't have to get up off the couch. This is not what is happening here. 
And let's also not forget that these men love Jesus. We take that out of it sometimes. These men are genuinely following someone that they believe is the Savior. And I don't know about you, but I don't like disappointing people that I hold in very high regard. I didn't tell Ken Wenzel I was going to mention his name, so I have to ask for forgiveness. Have you ever felt like you disappointed Ken Wenzel? It's a difficult thing. Why? Because he's a godly man, and I really love him. I didn't like disappointing my parents because I loved them, and I wanted to make them proud. There's no sense where they would enjoy falling short of Jesus' expectations. We take the humanity out of this sometimes as we see them, but I think what we have to see here is that the disciples, although they moved to a very short-sighted and a very physical and a very temporal argument, really replicate what we do quite often, don't they? I mean, I know that my tendency, although it is to shake my head at the disciples, my tendency is to be hyper-focused on the here and now, too. Even, even when I put it in spiritual terms, like praying that God would meet my needs. There absolutely is a place. Give us this day our daily bread. Christ modeled that prayer. But very, very often when I pray, Lord, meet my needs, what I mean is, Lord, meet the need by making it so the doctor says the right thing. Lord, meet my need by making sure that, sure that the paycheck and the bank account balance is what I think it ought to be. Lord, meet the need by making that relationship stable and safe and secure. And those are all real needs. And those are all really important. But as Christ promises certain things to his disciples, they include things like making the kingdom and the Father known to them. It includes things like meeting the greater need. And if you read all the way through, uh, especially in the New Testament, as it talks about the new covenant, the greatest need that we have is not physical. The greatest need that we have is restoration with God. And as he does that, he makes us more like the Son. So as I pray, Lord, meet my need, in that same breath, I have to understand that what I need is ultimately to be made more like Jesus. And so we can't miss that, that the contrast here isn't with the religious leaders and the disciples in terms of one getting it and one not getting it. In fact, we don't see a contrast yet at all. The religious leaders and the disciples have a lot in common. They're both blind. And that stings a little bit when I realize that I look a lot like the disciples. Because if I look like the disciples and the disciples look like the religious leaders, then that means through some math property that I won't even begin to try to articulate that I somehow demonstrate the same characteristics as the hard-hearted, blinded religious leaders sometimes too. So what's the difference? Where is the contrast? Where is the hope in all of that? Where the hope actually comes at the end in the correction. And that's what we see in verse 8 is the correction. And this is where we find the hope and the restoration. Verse 8, but Jesus, aware of this, and I love that, They are not coming to Jesus saying, we don't understand. They're not coming to Jesus saying, we get the warning. They don't even come to Jesus and say, yeah, we totally forgot the bread. We're really sorry. Jesus is here. They're here arguing about how to fix this problem. And Jesus is over here. I know what the problem is, guys. He's aware of this. And he says, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? How is that hopeful? Where's the contrast? Where's the encouragement in OU of little faith? Because that sounds pretty harsh, and it is. Little faith is not a compliment, but do you know what it's not? Do you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, you evil and adulterous generation, does he? 
He doesn't say you have no faith. He says you have a little faith. This is correction, but it's not rejection. And then what else does he do? He reminds him of the truth. He says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? And in their minds, they'd be thinking, we remember that. There were 12 of those. I was holding one. Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? We remember. Seven big baskets left over. How is it then that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? He calls their minds back to truth. He calls their minds back to what he has done, what he is able to do. He calls their minds back to the fact that he is able to meet physical needs and that none of this was about physical needs in the first place. That Jesus satisfies. And then he brings them back to the teaching and the warning that he started with. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And that's really encouraging. Because he corrects them and he doesn't leave. He says to the scribes and Pharisees, he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you of little faith, you're hard-hearted, you're rebellious, you're an adulterous people, and then he leaves. And he says to his disciples, you have a little faith. Let me remind you of the truth, and now let's go through this again. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I am so thankful for verse 12, because what does it say? Then they understood. They understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They understand that this is about the malignancy, the deadly danger of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, what teaching? This isn't some theological nuance because the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't agree on that. What is the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees? It's that this Jesus is not who he says he is. It's their teaching that you can see a miracle and call it the work of Satan. You can look at the Messiah and call him the devil. It's their teaching that rejects Christ, who is the only hope. By the way, this is exactly what we would expect to happen. Why? Because we're in Matthew chapter 16, and we've already been through Matthew chapter 11 where we're told that these things are hidden from the wise and the understanding and they're revealed to little children. But we're told that the Son knows the Father and that the Son reveals the Father to all of those who are His. Where we're told in chapter 13 that to those who have, more will be given. That this kingdom is not understood or entered into because you're better, because you're brighter, because you're more theologically inclined. That this kingdom is understood because the King reveals it to His people. That this kingdom is understood because the king takes darkness and brings it into light. And then something really fascinating happens that Matthew doesn't take us through, but Mark does. Because immediately after this little exchange in Mark's gospel, Jesus performs a miracle. And you know what it is? It's healing a blind man. And that miracle in Mark chapter 8 is very, very unique. Because it's the only miracle that's recorded where it happens in stages. Jesus touches the blind man, and he sees, but he sees kind of blurry. He says, I see people walking around, but like trees. And then Jesus touches him again, and he's restored to full sight. 
And boy, does that passage confuse people. What happened with that miracle? Did Jesus only use some of his power and then he had to use all of it? Did the miracle not take hold? Was there not enough faith at first? What happened? It's really confusing until you put it in the context and you see that the disciples saw, but it was little by little as they're brought to increasing clarity. And now they are given this very powerful visual example in Mark chapter 8 of the fact that God brings light. And sometimes he does that in stages. That God will complete the enlightening of his people, but that it's a process as he reveals more and more of himself in his kingdom day by day by day. So as we come to the end here, we're asking, what do we understand about the signs of the times? Uh, The great condemnation here in this passage against the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that they are blind. They are blind to what was obvious, not physically, but to the signs of the times. They take what's clear and they make it obscure. They take what is right in front of their face and they make it to where they can't even exhibit any kind of understanding that this is the Messiah. And the danger is that we take this nice little narrative and we leave it 2,000 years ago in that place, in that time, in that continent for that people, and we fail to see both the warning and the comfort that comes from this passage. Uh, What's the warning? That sometimes disciples are blind too. That sometimes disciples are no better at reading the signs of the times than those who are completely outside of the kingdom altogether. Well, surely not us. I mean, surely we are people who see the signs of the times, aren't we? We look at the world around us, and we understand that things can't continue as they are, and we understand that Jesus is coming again, and many of us hope for and long for and anticipate that not only is he coming, but that he's coming soon. Some of us, uh, we can, you know, we have our charts, and if you know eschatology and times, dispensational people. We love our charts. And we'll show you how things are going to work out. And we've got it all uh, figured out. And by the way, I think that's important. And I hold to those things. But at the end of the day, do I love my neighbor enough to tell them the gospel? We, We can articulate our theological nuances down to the nth degree. I'm a Calvinist, and you know, if they had 12 points, I'd be more Calvinistic than Calvin was. Or I'm Reformed with a capital R, or I only read books by guys that have been dead for way more than 100 years. And I can get my theology down to the nuts and the bolts and beyond, down to the microscopic level. I can tell you the order of salvation before the eternity of the world. And are you characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? And it's not that those other things aren't important. I'm not saying that. We, we need to understand our eschatology, our study of the end times. We need to think deeply about those things. We need to have our theology sorted out. We need to understand how we're supposed to live in the life and the body of the local church. Things like ecclesiology, all those fancy theological words. They mean something to us, and they should. We are supposed to pursue those things deeply. But studying the theological nuance does not breed a great love for God and the basics. In fact, understanding the basics, the clear signs breeds the desire and the love to pursue those deeper and more intimate things. The detailed fine points of theology, those great things to argue, debate, talk about, those things that sharpen us, those things that really prod and poke our mind, what moves us towards thinking about those things is first being struck by the awe and wonder of the fact that I offended and sinned against the holy God of the universe. 
And that for some reason in his kindness and in his mercy, he saved sinners among whom I am the worst. And what's the comfort? It's understanding that God never leaves his people in darkness. Although sometimes we feel like we've got the darkness pretty well all around us. It's an understanding that God in his kindness and in his patience and in his gentleness and even in his mercy that God will correct us. Harshly at times when that is required. And that as he makes us more like the sun, he brings us greater and greater light and understanding. And it's an understanding that God will finish the good work that he started in us. That the one who started that process of salvation to begin with, the one who... uh, ordained from before the foundations of the world, the one that called, the one that saved, the one that sanctifies is the same one who promises that he will glorify and that he will finish the process that he began. Three things for us to think about as we go here. First of all, we need to think about darkness and light. This passage reminds us that there is no neutral audience. There are those who are in darkness and who walk in darkness and who embrace the darkness and there are those that God has called and rescued from that kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son and what is striking and remarkable and what we need to keep ever before our eyes is that God does not wait for us to inch closer to the light before he calls us into the light Romans 5 reminds us that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us he didn't die for the good he didn't die for the godly otherwise he would have died for no one He died for the rebel. And maybe there's someone here or someone listening who thinks if only you inch your way closer to goodness, then God's tractor beam will kind of take hold and pull you the rest of the way. Or maybe uh, you're under the impression that if only you're faced with one more logical argument or one more proof or one more evidence, then maybe you'll be pushed over the edge and believe in this whole Christianity thing. Uh, I would remind you, that God is not obligated to provide evidences, and it's never evidences that lead to the kingdom. What you need is a heart change. And that if God is prompting you, then recognize the work of the Lord and repent and turn to him while he's giving you life and breath to do it. Second, we need to consider the source of our sight. Spiritual wisdom and insight... It isn't because of a good teacher or preacher. It's not because of a great writer in a great book thinking in really clear ways. Real understanding and real enlightenment is a work of God and the Spirit. Now, those people help us. There are people that teach us and train us and bring us along. There are theologians who help us to think clearly and set things in order. Uh, There are writers who have helpfully expressed the things of God for us. But at the end of the day, understanding comes from the Lord. It's, it's why when we pray before we study, open our eyes to behold wonderful things, we mean it. Because on my own, not only is my vision fuzzy, on my own my eyes are closed, my hands are over them, and I don't want to see. But God opens the eyes of his people. Once again, that matters in how we approach the world. That ought to give us great confidence. Because the world is not looking for you to get a little bit more educated so you can make a little bit better argument so you can win that one smarter person into the kingdom. Uh, Does the Christian faith have reasons that we believe? Absolutely. Is the Christian worldview logical and defensible in a way that no other worldview is? 
But at the end of the day, your brilliance and my brilliance are not what get anyone into the kingdom. It's the work of God. And so what are we left with? The responsibility to simply present the gospel that saved us. To talk about the God who made us. The God that we sinned against. To talk about the Son of God who came and died for that sin. Who suffered for that sin. Who then placed his righteousness on us. Who was raised to life and power in the resurrection. Who secures an eternal hope in eternity for us. And as we proclaim that gospel, then we watch the power of God through that gospel. And the work of the Spirit change people's hearts. And it doesn't become an IQ comparison, and it doesn't become a logician's experiment to see who can argue their case better. It becomes a story of God getting all the glory, even as he uses frail and fallen human beings to proclaim the glory of his kingdom. Finally, we need to be a people that remember the promises and the proof. One of the wonderful things about this passage is the reminder that God is faithful, that he brings his people to understanding. But an understanding of what? Chapter 11, he says that he makes the kingdom and the Father known to his people. It says he provides for our basic needs. It says he finishes the work that he started in us. We are never promised that we will know the intimate details of every why question that we want to ask. Now, God can take the whys. You read through the Psalms, and there are several bitter laments that say, Why God? Where God? How long God? But the comfort that's provided is not in going, is not in God saying, here is a mystical understanding of the whys of your particular situation. And it's not in the immediate removal of those circumstances. The comfort that's given, the why that's answered, is in the character of God. The first sermon I ever preached here while we were candidating was Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Lord, save me or I'm dead. And then the end of that, but I will remember and rejoice in your steadfast love because you've dealt bountifully with me. David can say, I'm going to die, and yet you've been gracious to me. God may not be obligated to answer all of my whys that I ask, usually when I'm throwing some kind of a tantrum. But he's already graciously answered the biggest why of them all. Because he loves me. Because he's called me, because he's making me more like the sun, and because he'll finish the work that he started in me. And so through whatever circumstance, we can not only survive, but we can rejoice. Let's pray. Lord, it's a difficult thing to to confess that we're often a hard-hearted and rebellious people. God, it's... A hard thing to say that sometimes I'm blind, especially when I should have every advantage. And yet sometimes, Lord, I throw my hands up over my eyes and I refuse to see. Lord, and I confess that usually it's because I think that I have a better way or a better plan. Lord, be gracious to us. Convict us of our sin. Bring our eyes to light and understanding. And help us to see the why. Not, not the why in our circumstance necessarily, but help us to see you. God, make us a people who see the signs of the times, who understand who you are and how you are working. A, a people who proclaim this great gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems sinners for an eternity with you. God, we need your help even to do that. And how good and gracious, how wonderful and beautiful and majestic 
and kind you are that you reveal our blindness to us and that you remove that blindness and bring us into light. So Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Bring us to our knees in worship and then bring us to our feet in service and obedience. We love you, we praise you, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Now this being the first Sunday of the month, it's time that we take communion together. And you talk about a potential for missing the signs, this is one of them. How easy it is for us to see this as just something we do. How easy it is for us to see this as just something that Christians do. And if we're going to sit in a church on a particular Sunday of the month, then we'd better do it too. That would be missing a sign. Why are we given things like the bread and the cup there to remind us, to call us back to the truth, to help us to be a people who, although we are quick to forget, are drawn to remember? And so, in a week that has been busy, in a day where we're going to celebrate and have a great deal of fun together after second service, I promise you, let's be people who take a moment to be reminded of the signs, to think about the bread and the cup and what it is they represent to confess those sins that perhaps we have gone too long without confessing, to make plans to restore relationship where for too long we've been content to be out of relationship with fellow believers, to lift our eyes to the hope of a coming kingdom when for too long maybe we've been fixated on our own circumstances. So let's take just a moment, prepare our minds and hearts for communion, just silently pray, thank God, confess to God, Rejoice in who he is and in who he's made you. And we'll come back and we'll take the bread together in just a moment. As Paul writes to that church in Corinth, he gives us those familiar words. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you. But the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Let's pray. Lord, don't let us miss the sign. Lord, there's nothing magical or mystical about what happens, but this is more than a dried piece of bread. Lord, this is a reminder, so help us remember. A body prepared for us. The eternal, infinite, holy, awesome, powerful Son of God who took on flesh and walked among his creation, who knew fatigue and hunger, 
who knew friendship and rejection. Made like us, but without sin. Lord, let us worship in that reality. In Christ's name, amen.